you at the back and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And I haven't got a page number, but if somebody does, they can tell me what it is and I'll shout it out to help you. It's 12.09. 1.209. If you're using a red covered Bible. 1.209. Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 1 through to 16. Hebrews 11, 1 through 16, on page 1209. So as we read, remember this is God speaking to us. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commanded as one who, commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who are heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he, is good, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And please come and speak, and I'm going to pray for you, and then you can carry on. So let's just... 
pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in our language. Thank you that you've given us the ability to read. Thank you that you've given us teachers to explain it to us. But ultimately, we need your Holy Spirit and pray that he would be at work through and um, through us so that we can better comprehend and understand that it would change us and bring us more on board what you are doing and change us to be the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having us uh, around. It's good to uh, meet up with you again and thank you for your interest and involvement in what we're doing in lots of different ways. Look forward to chatting with more of you over lunch if you're around and able to stay for that as well. Um, we're going to have a look this morning at these, some of these verses in Hebrews 11 and uh, 12. Uh, so if you have that on standby, uh, we'll be there uh, in a minute. But as Johnny said uh, at the beginning, the Bible is one book, isn't it? With one overarching theme. And, uh, and you know, wherever you cut the Bible, you, you find that it's all about the mission of God. It, it is one book with one complete message in that way. Sometimes we might think that there are certain kind of mission passages that we think of, like Acts 1.8, where it says, go in uh, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Or we might think of Matthew 28, where Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel and, and so on. But one of the things that is important for us to realize is that because God is a God of mission, uh, he is on a mission to call and recreate a people for himself, to forgive us and to uh, fill us with himself and to um, have us live with him and glorify him forever in a new heaven and a new earth because that's his vision. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's his purpose in this world and that's the, per- the mission that then, as we become one of his people, he calls us to join with him on. And so when you look at the Bible through those eyes, you realize the whole thing is about mission. It's all about it. So from early on, uh, after the fall in Genesis, uh, you get that hope held out of the Messiah who would crush Satan's head. And then you get Abraham, who's going to have a descendant who would bless the whole world. And you've got then the nation that comes from Abraham, Israel, that is meant to be a light to the nations. And then Jesus finally comes and uh, then he uh, dies for the world. He, He is risen again. He's ascended into heaven. He sends his spirit into his followers who then scatter all over the planet. And and you can see it all the way through. And then when you have all the letters of the New Testament, this is the context in which all those letters are written. They're written from people on a mission to other people on a mission about the mission. That's what it's all to do with. And then we find ourselves in that era ourselves of being in this time where Jesus has gone back to heaven, he sent his spirit, and we're living in a world trying to uh, spread it as far as we can. It's our turn now, if you like. The baton is in our hands, and it's our turn in this generation. And we'll think some more about that later. But the fact is that the need is still massive, isn't it? It's still a big task. When Jesus said, go and, and preach the gospel everywhere, there are some pretty large areas of the world uh, that just haven't heard yet. Of course, there's many people in our own countries as well, aren't there? But um, you start thinking around the planet and you look at a website like uh, joshuaproject.net, if you've never looked at that, you have a look, and they reckon that there are over 16,000 different people groups in the world, and as they've done their research, they reckon that 6,954 of them are effectively unreached. So about 40% of the people groups of the world, they 
say, are effectively unreached. There may be one or two Christians in some cases, but there isn't an established indigenous church in those people groups. And they represent about 2.8 billion people around the world. And then you think about our own countries where that maybe have something of a Christian heritage, but they're tough now, aren't they? They're tough ground and missionaries are now coming here. And so when you think about our job in the world, that we're part of God's uh, people and we're now joining with him on his mission, and you start to think, well, what kind of people then does he want us to be? What does he want us to be like? And uh, having said that the whole Bible is about mission, we could look anywhere in many ways, but we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 because I think that we're going to find encouragement and, and challenge in this chapter to um, live out what I want to call uh, ordinary people taking faith-filled risks for the kingdom. If you're going to summarise the whole thing this morning, you could put that. Ordinary people taking faith-filled risks for the kingdom. And to give you a really quick background to get up to speed on Hebrews at this point, this letter is written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who were finding it really hard to follow Jesus. They're living in an environment where it was very hostile, people didn't like them being believers, and they were just finding it difficult, so they were tempted to give up. They were really tempted to just jack it all in and go back to how it was before, thinking maybe that just would have been easier. And this letter is written to say, please don't give up. It is worth it. Keep on going. You can do it. Jesus is better. He is worth it. You can keep on trusting him. And wants them to to persevere right on to the end. And so as part of his effort to encourage the Christians not to give up, we then get this chapter where he like parades all these different people from through the, the Bible as examples of people who kept on going and kept on following God no matter what came their way. He's trying to encourage them to say, look at these people who did it. You can keep on going as well. And of course, we, there's so much in here that you could spend weeks and weeks going through this chapter. We're just going to skim over and drop in on a, a, two or three examples. And uh, the first one I want us to look at is Noah in uh, verse 7 and have a look at what he has to say about him he says there in verse 7 by faith Noah when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear built an ark to save his family by faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith and I know when you, um, you get some of these characters from a long time ago uh, you can almost have this feeling like they're not quite real. You know, it's, they're a bit mythical, you sometimes can feel. So, um, yeah, I sometimes think how my kids one minute would be playing with a little Bob the Builder, and then they've got a little wooden Mr. Noah. And they're sort of, you know, together, it's almost like it, they don't feel very real sometimes. But we need to try and get our head around the fact that Mr. Noah was a real man. He was a real bloke who lived in the real world. And, and just the reality of what he faced. Um, at the risk of appealing to Hollywood to get us back to reality, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Evan Almighty, but it was the follow-up to Bruce Almighty, which was a bit more famous. And um, whilst uh, Evan Almighty probably isn't going to go down in the annals of classic cinematography, um, I thought found it quite interesting, because the idea is that um, this guy is in 21st century America, but he's he has like a Mr. Noah type experience. He's asked to build a boat in the middle of nowhere. 
And the thing that I thought was interesting about the film was just how ridiculous and embarrassed he was about doing it and the ridicule that people heaped on him. And, and you think about if he actually, if God actually asked you to do something like that, what that would be like. It, it was just odd and embarrassing and awful. And we could maybe read back on the Noah story and say, oh yeah, of course he built the boat. Of course he did. But it was really hard for him. It was really hard. And the film kind of portrayed that quite well. It just seemed unfathomably stupid to build a boat. And the same for the real Noah. It was no different. He was an ordinary man. It was just as bizarre and embarrassing for him to do that. But, it says, when he was warned about unseen events, in holy fear he built the ark and so he saved his family and condemned the world. In other words, he feared God more than he feared man and so he basically said to man around him, you're wrong and so became part of the family of God. I'm going God's way, you're not right when you ridicule this, I'm going to do what he says. And the whole people-pleasing thing is a tough one to overcome for most of us, isn't it? The fear of people. It's one of the reasons that we don't often stick our necks out and say some of the things that maybe we think we should. It's just that basic instinct that we don't want to look stupid. Most of us have it. We want to be liked. And it's a big thing. And that's why the Bible says so much about the fear of other people. It's a theme that comes up quite a lot because God knows that we're wired that way and that it's difficult But if you think about Noah's life, if he had not loved the affirmation of God more than the affirmation of the people who were around him, he would never have built the boat, would he? He just wouldn't have done it. He was more concerned about what God thought of him and seeking his approval than he was about what anybody else said. An ordinary guy with all the same kind of hang-ups and emotions and life as we would have, all the same kind of fragilities. He said, I'm going to do this thing. And it says, by faith, he did it. Then look at another one in uh, verse 8. Another example, look at Abraham. So Abraham, it says in verse 8, when called to go uh, to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So here's how being a faithful risk-taker worked out for Abraham. He uh, obeyed God and left his home, even though he didn't know where he was going. Again, don't just sort of categorise this as a legendary Abraham. Of course, he would do that because he was Abraham kind of classic story. He wasn't superhuman, he was just a mere mortal who messed it up at times, got it wrong. Sometimes he lied under pressure, we see that in the Bible. He didn't always make the right decisions. But he trusted God to physically set out on a journey without knowing where the end point was. I mean, you imagine doing that. You're packing up all your stuff, sticking it all in the car. Pack up your house even, stick it all in the back of a lorry... And uh, you, you get in and you're, you're asked, you know, the kids say, where are we going? You say, don't know. <laughs> We're just setting off. <laughs> you know, imagine if they start saying, are we there yet? And you say, yeah, kids, you have no idea. <laughs> of course, Abraham didn't have any kids, so he didn't have that trouble. But nevertheless, it was, it was that weird. 
He didn't know where he was going, but he trusted God and went out even though he could not see and stepped out in faith. And verse 17 has an even more extreme example of this. As Abraham is tested and asked to offer Isaac, as he then by this point now has had a son, uh, asked to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And you know, you read this and for any parent the thought is just gut-wrenching. So again, don't think these people were different to us. It would have been just as hard for him. But he believed that God had said, God had his original plan to say, you know, I'm going to give you a nation, make you into a nation through Isaac. And now he's willing to obey God when God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And and then he must have scrambled his brain really to, to have, how do these two things fit together? So verse 18 Uh, It says, uh, um, well, starting in verse 17, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. But verse 19 tells us how his mind was working. Verse 19 says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. (laughs) Isn't that great? Abraham had never seen anyone raised from the dead. It wasn't that he thought, oh yeah, (laughs) this happened. But he so believed what God said, he just simply reasoned that if God actually wanted him to sacrifice Isaac, and he'd said that he was going to be the means to make a whole nation, God must be planning to bring him back to life. And although in the end, of course, God didn't uh, require him to, to kill him, that was where Abraham had got to. He trusted God to that extent. Now, I don't think that made it, would have made it any easier to lift a knife. But he believed that, that God would do this. An ordinary man though he was, he was full of faith in what God said and was prepared to take extraordinary risks there. Let's zoom in on one more as well in verse 24. So verse uh, 24, talking about Moses now, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So here's Moses. There's been the whole bulrushes thing which leads uh, providentially to him being part of the royal household of Egypt. So... Remember, this is the superpower of the day. Uh, This is a seriously good deal he's got here. Uh, Through an unlikely series of events, he now finds himself part of the first family of the superpower, the most powerful nation of the world. But it says he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be ill-treated with the people of God instead. Which again, on the surface of it, seems ridiculous. You may sort of spot the pattern here. (laughs) That they're often ending up doing things that seem odd. Why would you give up comfort and ease and applause in order to be beaten up and despised? Why give up the celebrity lifestyle for the pauper lifestyle? Why would anybody do that? It just seems illogical. Until you get to the point that Moses got to in verse 26. Where it says... He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Interestingly, it mentions Christ there. Of course, this was before Christ, but effectively his trust was in Christ. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead 
to his reward. And that makes much more sense, doesn't it? His reason for making these choices was not that he liked being disgraced, but that he wanted something more than pleasures of of money or fame or whatever you want to call it. He got his eyes fixed on a reward that was so great it made all the treasures of Egypt just look like rubble. That was the perspective he had. He wanted to have this reward of being part of God's family, part of God's uh, kingdom, one of his people. And so it says he refused to be enticed by sin. Which, um, sin is so often, isn't it, what what keeps us from living a a sort of faith-filled life, living uh, out our lives for God. Because sin in our lives, in whatever form it comes, it, it, it often has the effect, doesn't it, of just sapping our spiritual energy. It leaves us feeling kind of pathetic and defeated and, you know, that's my experience. I'm, I'm sure many of you would be the same, that you just, it, it, you lose the kind of focus. And it's a real issue. And, and what Moses did here is actually the way that faith deals with the challenge and temptation of sin. What he did is the right thing, because it, it wasn't just about, I'm going to try really hard not to do this. I have to try really, really hard not to do this. Actually, what he did was, he put his focus on something better. So this is how faith, faith deals with it. It looks up and sees something better than whatever the, the temptation of the current situation might be and fixes its eyes on that and, and says, this is better than whatever temporary satisfaction or enjoyment or release I might get out of this particular temptation. This is better. There is something better. And that realisation in Moses' case enabled him to go and take incredible faith-filled risks. So in his case, standing in front of that leader of the world superpower and saying, you're wrong. And you've got to let God's people go. And uh, verse 27 to 30 outline how the people were released through the Passover and across the Red Sea, all stories you could go into themselves. We could just keep on going with this. What the writer then says in verse 32 is right, isn't it? You could just go on and on and on. What more shall I say, he says in verse 32. I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, uh, raised to life again. But it wasn't always positive, great, glory stuff because then others it says were tortured and refused to be released so that they might get a be- gain a better resurrection some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison they were stoned they were sawn in two they were put to death by the sword they went about in sheepskins and goatskins destitute persecuted and ill-treated the world was not worthy of them One of the songs our kids sometimes sing is, um, I don't know if you know it, God's people aren't super brave superheroes. Have you ever heard that? I'm not going to sing it. But um, it's a great little song. God's people aren't super brave superheroes. They don't have muscles from their heads to their toes. They're not gladiators. That's easy to see. In fact, it's amazing. They're just like you and me. And then there's a bit of shouting and stuff, which we'll do later maybe. But... It's a kid's song. I actually think that's quite profound, though. Because, as I say, we, we tend to think of these people and, and put them on a bit of a pedestal. 
And this says, God's people aren't super brave superheroes. They're just like you and me. They're ordinary people. And yet they take these kind of risks and, 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 and step out in faith in order to advance the kingdom of God. And it's all through the Bible, and it's through church history, and it's around in our own day as well. There are many, many places where we see this. There's a man called um, Alistair that um, some of us know. I, I'm guessing that you guys would have met him out in Kosovo, a friend of Primrose and Dan's and others who... Um, he lives there these days, but for many years he used to work for Open Doors, uh, getting Bibles into unlikely situations. And one day somebody from uh, Open Doors contacted him with a, a new project saying that uh, he should go to the Philippines and uh, stay in a hotel and just wait. Someone would contact him. Kind of James Bond-like almost, isn't it? Someone will contact you. So he went there and uh, he was recruited basically to be part of a team taking a ship into the seas off China and they dropped a million Bibles uh, under the nose of the Chinese authorities, doubled the number, uh, number of Bibles in China overnight. And uh, some crazy stuff happened along the way, like going into the path of typhoon, which diverted miraculously and head off another way, and different things like that. You can, if you Google Project Pearl, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet about it. Time magazine even wrote an article about it. But you meet Alistair. He's a fairly unassuming, down-to-earth little Scottish fella who just trusts God and some faith-filled risks in some particular way that he was called to do. Uh, you think of uh, the team that one of the guys uh, is, uh, from our church is part of out in uh, Macedonia. They've moved there to start a business and be a witness in a Muslim city uh, that has no church. And this is a city where a man who did become a believer a little while ago was tied upside down to a tree and told, that's what we do to Christians around here. But these two or three families have, have moved out there and amid many heart-searching questions and lots of difficulties and how does it work with the kids and all this sort of thing and it's hard work but they're out there, ordinary people just like you and me taking faith-filled risks um, I was in North India uh, a while back and uh, I was talking to somebody before about that North India is quite different to South India you think about a lot of mission work that's gone on in India most of it was in the South the north was fairly untouched, such that people sometimes dubbed it the graveyard of Christian missions, which of course it wasn't, but it was seen sometimes as the place where Christianity just couldn't get to, people sometimes said. Um, but nevertheless, it's really starting to open up, and the massive number of unreached people groups, when you actually look at some of the stuff that Joshua Project talks about, loads of those people groups are in this big area of North India, and there's new churches starting all the time, sometimes that such that the leaders of the movements don't even um, get to hear about it until after the event. You know, you normally in our context we think of planning a church for ages, we're going to plant this church and this is how we're going to do it, and you have lots of meetings. And In that context, they, sometimes these churches just happen. There's one girl, 16-year-old girl I met a couple of times, who kind of started three churches by accident. <laughs> it sounds a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? But she had a demon cast out of her, which is very much a reality out there. She trusted Jesus, and she told people in three different villages nearby about what happened to her and a whole load of them decided they were going to follow Jesus. So very quickly there was about 80 of them and so they all got together in a house and they're saying so um, you told us about this so tell us some more and she's like well I don't really know that much more. So let me go back and talk to the pastor who told me and then people have brought in some support now and so on and effectively uh, there's two more fledgling churches started and about 300 people altogether. But a lot of difficulty in that area, a lot of opposition. So that when I was out there talking to some of the house church leaders, we were going through a bit of acts in some training, 
and the subject of persecution came up and I said, how many of you have faced persecution? And they all put their hands up and looked at me like, kind of, that's a stupid question. <laughs> why, why did you? Of course we do. One pastor I met explained how when he became a Christian, his own mother and brother tied him to a tree and beat him. And his wife was going to divorce him until God spoke to her in a dream and, and then God did a few things and now the whole family's Christians. That's the edited short down version. But you can see how, you know, when you look at some of these contexts, it's a faith-filled risk to even become a Christian in some of these places. You know from the outset, if I become a Christian, this is going to mean it's a difficulties for me. You go into it very much with your eyes open. That was true of a baptism that I uh, went to, where they were baptised down in a river. It was this remote village, miles away from anywhere. And they didn't want to draw attention to it at all, so that people gathered in this uh, village, but then walked in twos and threes, so as to not make it obvious, to walk about a mile through some fields and woods and so on down to the river. I put this kind of white cloth around my head um, to try and vaguely disguise that I was a big white guy. Uh, don't think I fooled anybody really, but, you know. Um, they, they were very concerned to avoid unwanted attention because sometimes mobs had gathered in the past when they'd had baptisms. And so we went along and eventually we got to this clearing where the group of Christians were and they went down into the river and 23 new brothers and sisters were baptised in the river with the water buffalo just by <laughs> in the river with them. And the thing that is just very striking to me that is the way that for some of these people, when you're in a setting where even becoming a Christian in the first place is risky, where there's the threat of suffering and persecution, it affects the kind of Christian you become. So you expect to take risks. You expect to, that you, you need to have this kind of faith where you're hanging on to God for everything because you, you can't do it all yourself. But bringing it back to the here and now and into our contexts, you know, our societies are quite risk-averse, aren't they? Um, I suspect the UK might be worse at this than Ireland. Um, but, you know, we, are, we have risk assessments coming out of our ears and everything is, is, is very, very cautious. And, and obviously there are times when if you can avoid a simple accident by doing something sensible, then good. Obviously that, there's many good things about that, even if the paperwork sometimes gets a bit over the top. But I think there's a problem that as cultures in the West, sometimes we're, we're almost in pursuit of the risk-free life. We, we kind of think we can have, you know, perfectly safe cars, super safe cars, super safe playgrounds, safe houses, safe working environments, everything's covered, but this is kind of our right. And I think if we're not careful, we also want a safe Christianity. And maybe we don't ever say that out loud, but given that it's a mindset that we have for so much of the rest of life, I think we can fairly un uh, unwittingly apply it to our faith as well. And it is actually deadening to faith. Pursue other things if you want. They're fine to a point. But please don't pursue safe Christianity because you just don't find it in the Bible. It's not there. Jesus said, take up your cross, not your armchair. It's not about going out and looking for trouble or difficulty, obviously. And we thank God that we don't have some of the pressures that people in other countries uh, may have. But the truth is that for many of us, we will steer clear from anything that will cause us a little bit of discomfort because culturally we just don't do discomfort if we can possibly avoid it. 
And this matters because the era of living on the edge for the sake of the extension of God's kingdom isn't over. Because as I said before, it's our turn now. The baton's in our hand. And so when you go back to Hebrews 11 again, these are not the records of great activities of, of the days of old and their nice bedtime stories and so on. No, this faith-filled, live-on-the-edge stuff was um, an era. It was the first stage. They were the forerunners in a race that is not over yet. So you look at verse 39 and 40. That's what this means. 39 and 40, at the end of chapter 11, say, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So the reward, it's like the end of the race isn't, it's not over yet. The reward is for us and them together. It's not finished. If you're watching the 4x400 meters relay, you don't leave after three of the runners have taken their turn and say, oh, that was good, wasn't it? Okay, let's go and get a coffee. Because there's another stage yet. It's not finished. And, and this race image is, is then where the writer goes, if you just go on into the beginning of chapter 12, where he describes this cloud of witnesses looking on and cheering us on. And so the idea is that these people that he's been through in chapter 11, the ones that we looked at and all the others as well, he's, he's got this picture where he's saying, imagine they're, they're watching now, they're seeing you, they're in the stands watching as now you have it in your turn, in your generation, the baton's in your hand, and they're shouting, come on, you can do it, to these Hebrews there and to us now. And so you learn from what they learned. So it's like Noah is there shouting to us and saying, you don't have to fear what others think. I learned that, he's saying. You don't have to fear what others think. Fear God and trust him. And Abraham is shouting, come on, you can trust him with a future that you can't see and you don't fully understand. Follow him, even if you're not sure where you're going or how it will all work out. You can trust him. And Moses is shouting, it is possible to love God more than you love sin and temptation and be free to go out and, and serve him. And, and this, these witnesses are all there as we've got the baton in our hand. And so how then do we handle the fact that it's our turn now and we're on the track? Well, two things to close off with from the beginning of chapter 12. As God says, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We've got to run. But for all of us, there's stuff that holds us back, that weighs us down. And you think about what it is for you, because we're all different. What is it for you that just dampens your spiritual fervor, that just distracts you or cools you down? What are the things that weigh you down? And our priorities can get twisted, and our vision distorted. We need to see those things for what they are, and say, I'm not going to be seduced by these things. I'm going to throw them off. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to keep on going. And then second thing is, he says in verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who gives us our spiritual life. He's described as the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. So he's at both ends of it, if you like. He's the one we get our faith from, and he's also the, ones we fi we, the one we fix our eyes on. And if we look away from him, we're actually cutting off the supply line of our faith, because he's the author of it. He's, he's the one who gives us it. So we keep our eyes fixed on him, and we're sustained by him as we go on and finish it. And, and we follow his example, too, because 
he models exactly what we're being called to do, because it says, um, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're told to keep on going. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You probably can relate to that, I'm sure, at different points in our lives. You grow weary and you lose heart. You just think, this is hard. But don't drop out of the race. Remember, that's exactly what this letter was all about, telling them. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Cry out and ask for his help and say, I need your help. I'm going to keep on going. I want to keep on going with this race and trusting you. I believe you. Even that prayer like the guy said to Jesus in the Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe. I want to trust you. So then we ask, how are you going to play your part in God's mission? What does it look like for you to take your turn on the track as a church and individually? What's next, basically? Lots of great things going on, lots of great things you've done, but what's next? And you think globally, I don't know, maybe there's things you can get involved with in terms of new initiatives, linking up with other churches, so like we're going to talk about at the round table. Maybe there's things that you can get behind as a church. Maybe some of you might even go and live in some place far from here, some place that maybe you won't find in your average travel brochure, but where people need the gospel. Thinking locally, maybe you want to go out on a bit more of a limb, taking a few more risks in the community around here, building some friendships that might just scare you slightly living counterculturally treating what you own and the money you have in a slightly different way I don't know, there's lots of different ideas I think that's something for you to be praying about, isn't it? And talk about and think about but whether it's here or whether it's far away for all of us let's not be duped by the dream uh, of, of some kind of safe sanitised, tame Christianity that asks very little of us and that is easily controlled by us. May God give us the vision and the faith and the courage to live our lives for him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you give us the faith that we need, that you give us the strength to follow you. And thank you that you've opened our eyes to you in the first place, that we can know you and follow you and... Um, that you've forgiven us and that you're changing us and that we have this great destiny now with you. We pray that you'll help us in the day-to-day living of this life. Help us to see ourselves as uh, on the track, taking our turn in the race and to be inspired by those who've gone before and not least by the example of Jesus and to fix our eyes on him. And we pray that you'd help us to Uh, be clear about the things that you want us to do and to go out in faith and do them even though it may mean uh, some things aren't as easy as they might be even though it might mean sacrifices in different ways Lord we pray that you would help us to be people who are full of faith and prepared to take risks to serve you no matter what that may mean Lord we pray that we would be so uh, so much loving you and loving your glory that our own lives and priorities and comfort and everything else takes second place behind all of that and that it would all be for you. So we pray that you give us this big vision of who you are that helps us to live 
and give everything for you. Pray that for the church here and for the church where I am as well and wherever we might serve you one day in the course of our lives. And we ask it all for your fame and for your glory. Amen.